0: I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old forgotten pre Christian mythologies and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of Celtic Ireland to the soul centered myth tellings of Plato in ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. A world to which each incarnated soul chooses to come for a reason. To fulfill its own unique calling, and to offer up a gift which can only be expressed through a relationship with and participation in that animate world. Carrying the fire, carrying with us the image that we were born with, that we brought with us when we chose to come into this world. I believe that it's time to reclaim those old indigenous ways of being, to reclaim the foundation stones of Western spirituality and bring them back out into the world where they belong. Founded in authentic scholarship as well as committed embodied practice in the mythopoetic and creative arts, this work is above all about finding our way back into the mystic, about delving into the mysteries of wild psyche and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. So in this podcast, I offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. You'll also find episodes which share my own reflections on cultivating the mythic imagination, on listening to the Dreaming Land, usually with a story or two cast into the bubbling cauldron for good measure. I'm here this afternoon talking to Stephen Martin, who is known to many of you, I suspect, as the Sacred Gardener. And Stephen uh, is based in Golden Lake, Ontario. And his work is about practicing traditional living skills, those skills of growing food, of building and of healing. And really, it's also about, it seems to me, traditional ways of approaching and working with the land. As well as founding Livingston and Greenbloom, Toronto's first green landscaping company and creating the Algonquin Tea Company, which focused on bioregional tea products, Steve has given talks and workshops internationally for over 20 years. He's taught plant identification and wilderness skills at Algonquin College and in 2014 he and his partner Megan started the Sacred Gardener Earth Wisdom School. He's the author of two books, The Story of the Madawaska Forest Garden and Sacred Gardening. So welcome, Steve. It's lovely to talk to you across these wide
1: waters. Uh, thank you so much, Sharon. Yeah, and really thank you to all the folks out there who are giving their time and their energy to listen to our little conversation
0: Most of my work, as you probably know, with mythology and with psychology is very much about reconnecting people to their places, very much about bringing bringing it all back down to earth and to the places where our feet are planted. And it's actually quite rare that I find people that have the same focus and that I can talk to about this. So I'm particularly delighted to have a conversation with you this afternoon.
1: Nice. Likewise. Why
0: don't we start by you telling me about the Sacred Gardener and why you chose that name for your work?
1: It's kind of funny how things stick to you because when we started, the idea was that we need to all become sacred gardeners. And in a sense, this school uh, was a a training towards that way. So it wasn't so much uh, that I was claiming this ground as Sacred Gardener in as much as, again, this direction that we should all be facing. And I think there's this kind of, um, I, a lot of my background comes from indigenous skills and kind of um, what used to be called primitive living skills. The one thing that I really saw over and over again is this kind of prejudice towards agriculture, mm-hmm. as though it was somehow uh, a sin against the mother, just, by the very presence that you were doing it, you know, that there was something wrong with us. Yeah. And I've slowly come around over the years to, in a very internal way to discovering that actually it's nothing could be more divine and ceremonial than agriculture. We just lost that thread of it so long ago that people have just lumped it in, in this other camp of exploitation and taking and, and all that kind of end of things, but it's not at all that way necessarily. It's like hunting or anything. It can be done in a way that is actually a creative thing, a co-creative thing, you know, but um, partially because of our extensive shame from our extensive exploitation and colonial history, we're all laden with this shame. And so we go to that place where we're just like, oh no, We must preserve everything. We can't touch anything. But, of course, that's not reality. Right. It's it's a requirement of living that we take life.
0: For sure, whether it's plant life or animal life at some level, something has to die in order for us to live, yeah.
1: Yeah. Even the molecules that we're breathing are being annihilated. You know, they're being torn apart. Mm -hmm. Our very chromosomes, right, in growing are being torn apart.
0: It's interesting to hear you say that, because that is one of the things that has driven me quite mad as well, (laughs) quite frequently over the past few years, this idea, which became very fashionable, I don't know, maybe 10 10 years or so ago, that that, yes, agriculture was the beginning of all evil. And I don't know, maybe people like Paul Shepard and other thinkers have perpetrated that view on the world in, in many, many ways. And of course, I think that's partly because all that people see these days, all that is really visible to people is is bad agriculture you know the kind of agriculture that uses pesticides the kind of agriculture that produces monocultures and as you as you rightly say so many indigenous cultures have have practiced a much more um, sustainable form of agriculture if we think of the classic native americans system of the three sisters you know i mean that is agriculture that is growing things that weren't there previously
1: for sure big time and it was nothing could have been more sacred to them, right? The corn, how the corn came to them was through great sacrifice, you know, and through things that we can't even imagine. And this is kind of one of the ways that I talk about this and I kind of demonstrate it because it sounds kind of abstract and people are like, okay, yeah, maybe. But then I, I pull out something like an apple or a cob of corn, dried corn, And I say, so where did this come from? How how is it that we have this incredible, incredible staple in our diet? And you know what? Nobody can ever tell me. So here we are in the age of knowledge. Right. And the most basic components of our daily life are complete mysteries.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting to me, that there are many things in this that we'll pick up on, but one of the things that, that is interesting to me is that often when, when, people, when we are talking to people about that, they can just about maybe some of them accept the fact that an apple or a corn plant might just be okay. But when it comes to kind of animal-based agriculture, of course, that raises other questions. And it's quite complicated in this part of the world because the entire Irish economy, for example, going back well over two millennia, probably closer to three, is based on the keeping of cattle. You know, that's what they ate, because there was very little else in this land. And right. so the way, and of course, that's led to negative things, as as, as always has the possibility of, happen, uh, of happening. But you know, they held cattle as, as sacred in, in many ways. They were, they were sacred animals. And, and, you know, the, the relationship between people and, and the cattle wasn't necessarily as obviously exploitative as one might imagine. So there are, there are always shades, aren't there, in this kind of argument.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think it's, it's almost easier to understand how that co-creative, cooperative relationship started with animals and you can actually still see it, like, say, with the Laplanders, with the, the reindeer, <sighs> you know, where yeah. generally they're free, but they have these certain ways of keeping connected, keeping the reindeer as part of their extended family. Right. So they're traveling around with them. You know, they have ways of, um, what, I guess, neutering the males so that they become more docile and able to work with. And I mean, it's so beautiful to see how that all falls out. And then the idea that the very foundation of civilization, you know, Terence McKenna had some really interesting ideas about this, say, that the the full moon cults and the cattle cults, the original ones, all had also to do with the psychoactive mushrooms We're part of the lunar cycle, right? And so, partaking in this in this sacrament brought you into complete connection with those animals, right? And it was the exact same with the um, Siberian shaman, right? The Laplanders is that they would do mushrooms in order to connect with the reindeer, to know, you know, what was going on with them, where they were, maybe. I mean, it's kind of the original Christmas, right? Is you were flying with the reindeer. Right. And the right. gift was the meat to know where they were
0: exactly and i think also you see you know a lot of this passes into our mythology so in, in ireland you know the, the animals even the domestic animals become teachers uh, so it's not only wild animals that are your teachers there's a beautiful story very briefly in ireland about the glass gavelin um, which is um, basically the cow of plenty uh, and this was a cow another worldly cow whose milk fed armies whose milk would feed the whole of ireland and she allowed every person to take a bucket of her milk when they had need for a bucket until one day a woman came along with a sieve and basically milked her into a sieve so that you know one bucket after another. But because the sieve had holes in it, it you know, the idea was that the cow was fooled into thinking that the bucket was never empty,
1: uh, uh, was
0: never full. And um, anyway, when the cow caught onto this, she she bounded off into the ether and was never seen again uh, in the land of Ireland. So that's a really important to me. That's one of the best teaching stories that we have about not taking too much.
1: The you know, perfect just, story for our times, yeah.
0: Isn't it just uh, just it really taking is. enough? But that comes from the relationship between people and domestic animals, which is said, you know, at some level, you, you enter into a bargain uh, with a domestic animal, don't you? That you will take what is necessary and, and, and no more than that.
1: Absolutely. And same with the plants. And when you abuse it, it comes back on you almost right away. You know, it's really, um, for years, I, you know, was a wild crafter, professional harvester for wild stuff. And Wild crafters got this really horrible name, at least over here in North America, because they would go in and take everything. They'd, right. milk, they'd milk the cow with a sieve. You know, like they, they misperceived that because it was wild, they assumed it was free. But the way I teach it is because it's wild, it's even more valuable. Right. You're, you're truly taking those beings from their family in the wild. And so they need to be courted in a different way than our domestic animals and plants right? uh, before, you know, taking them. And that's when it starts to feel the big shift. Like when I'm gardening and weeding, which is going on a lot right now, (laughs) if you're looking at me from the road, you might go, Oh, that guy's doing the same stuff I do. You know, it's just no different. He's still pulling weeds and he's still planting seeds and doing all these things. But there is a difference. If, if you're inside of it, And on the inside and you're asking for permission and you're asking for forgiveness suddenly the whole thing has a different resonance and the plants are not like us about giving themselves they'll give themselves freely if you ask in the right way and so then it becomes a receiving instead of a taking and it's just a it's a difference in approach and it has to happen much slower and it happen, has to happen among equals. We right. have to realize these plants and animals are our equals. They're all people. They're all people. There's humans, but everything has a personality. Everything is a person. And should be dealt with that way, you know, worked with that way, not dealt with.
0: And, and we're so used to it. That's a difficult concept, isn't it? Because we're so used to taking and we feel so guilty about taking that I don't think that even the best of us are very good at receiving, you know, in, in that kind of giving way. Uh, so it does require a real, a real readjustment, a real d- change in your way of being in the world to think in these terms about, about plants.
1: Absolutely. And practice, right? Mm-hmm. We practice the taking thing. For years and years, we were taught how to do it, right? I mean, multi-generational, but I see with um, my children that the taking, there is a natural hesitancy in in the core of us, but then we've been told to, you know, just bypass that and it's okay. It's our right to take this.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. You say on your website, and I I pulled the quote out to to ask you about, because it's just such a lovely thing, or or even maybe not to ask you about, just to read out to people. You say that gardening is a literal metaphor of reverence, Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: you didn't remember that you said that, did you?
1: Oh, no. You know, I'm always just listening. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If anything Um, else is coming through on that.
0: (laughs) And I wonder if you could say something about that, about what that means to you. I, I know it's back to this concept of sacred gardening, but just to unpick that a little bit for people that are listening in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think about where this all began and the origins of these things. And this is the funny thing is for myself And I think maybe, you know, not to put myself in the same category, but for many other key historians and people in the last several decades who have started to bring back the old way of seeing things, I think there's something interesting that happens where you discover it first and then you become academic and start trying to find where it happened. So people like Peter Kingsley or Maria Gambutes, or, you know, like these folks, they felt it first. Right. They knew it was there and then they went to look for it and miraculously they find it, of course, because they they had aligned themselves with the energies. So I kind of feel the same way about, about gardening is that for me, over the years, it has become a ceremonial activity, the whole thing. And part of it is not passing it over to that industrial side of ourselves, that side of our brain and that side of ourselves that is always thinking about production and efficiency and all that nonsense. We have to let all that stuff go. You do it as a work of art. So everything from using the heavy hoe to originally break the sod, to making your mounds or, or your hills or your rows, that everything becomes a ceremonial act. And then the actual precise moment of when you put that seed on the altar, which is your bed, that seed is being killed. It's being sacrificed. You're offering it into the ground. You're letting go of it, just like a prayer or a wish. And then you're just holding on, just like you do with a prayer or a wish. And you've given it some time and then suddenly this miraculous thing comes back to you from it. You know, So it's really such a beautiful thing, right from the very start to the harvest, to the preparation of the food, every, every step of it can be such a sacred thing, which can keep us connected to the sacred, right? Because right. this is, this is our, our big struggle now, is we're the great forgetters, right? We're so good at forgetting those, what really matters, and those inside moments when we're connecting with things because really that's all that matters, you know, and it is the origins of all knowledge and all culture is those inside moments, but nobody's training us to do that. Everyone's just training us always to be on the outside of things
0: for sure and it, it, it's one of those things it's a beautiful image that you're drawing for isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's one of those things that I often try to talk about when I talk about people's responses to the mess that we find ourselves in today because of course you know you see it too. Everybody as you say is is focused externally everybody is told that we must save the world, we must do this, we must be activists you know we must march, we must, we must change and of course some people must and that is in no way to denigrate that very very necessary path but trying to to explain to people that, from my perspective, holding the space of a place, uh, witnessing what is going on in a place, keeping it alive. To me, if you look at the old Western traditions that you know, we're surra- we, that we are part of an anima mundi of a world soul. We feed that world soul. We keep it literally keep it alive by participating in it and by acknowledging it and by just doing these very simple seeming, as you say, ritual and ceremonial activities. That that make it feel loved, <laughs> you know. That make it feel that we are connecting with it, and and that, as you say, seems so simple, and it never seems enough to people. But I, like you, think that that's one of the most important things that we can actually do.
1: Absolutely, and it is it is a a real Buddhist tenet as well, right at the very basis that you can't change things through your intervention externally. But in a sense, you can lay that bed out, that fertile ground for the thing to change. And you do that through that loving, through that connecting. Just how, as you said, beautiful and simple that reality is. That in fact, you know, you might imagine yourself as an activist and you're saving the world and saving your world. And, you know, as a few of my indigenous friends say, who are you saving it for? You're going to save it for later? You know, it's like it's all happening right now and you must attend to it right now. And there's stuff right sitting on your lap that needs attending to. You don't have to look over to the other side of the world, right? Right.
0: Yeah. This this comes up a lot for me in, in some of the stuff that I teach uh, in my mythic imagination uh, classes about calling, you know, this idea that we all come into the world with a particular gift, with a particular thing to be, a particular way of expressing that world soul. And people yeah. always want to turn it into acting. They always think that that means that there is a calling, there is something that they are called to do. And it's like, no, no, no. You are an expression of, of, of the gift. You're an expression of the world soul. You have a particular gift. But I love the seed as matter. Meta- for that and James Hillman used the term he used many terms to express what people come into the world with but he also used the term acorn for that kind of that sense of something that sense of something that we're required to to be to do to, to express which is a seed of potential you know we come into the world with a potential for expressing a particular gift but there is no guarantee of it and I love that idea of you plant the seed and then you let it be because I think a lot of the A lot of this way of being in the world requires a little bit of an unattachment to outcome. Mm -hmm. You know, we want the seed to grow. That's why we plant it, but we can't really control it. And so we have to do our best. We have to, you know, water it and do all of those things, and then just sit back and let it let it be itself. So I love that metaphor of the seed and gardening that you've you've drawn for for this whole concept of of why we're here and what we're what we're about.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, and I, I agree that that. If one person, <laughs> you know, can really find their center, you know, their Christ or their Buddha or their Mary or their Kuan Yin within themselves and truly be there, then it's like the ripples in a, in a pond, right? Like it's yeah. just going to ripple out and affect everything, even though yeah. there may be no actual physical connection.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, The other thing that I'm curious about in respect of your work and and your specific teachings, and again, um, looking at your website, you talk a lot about reading the land before you build or otherwise develop it or make major interventions in it, I guess. And I wonder if you could explain a little bit about your approach to that and how you go about reading the land, how you go about listening, how you go about feeling what it it wants from us.
1: Sure. It brings to mind when I was doing my M.A., and my thesis supervisor was quite a stickler because he was the dean of the department. Uh, so he couldn't let anything, as he called it, fuzzy New Age thinking or anything vaguely <laughs> flaky to, to come by him. And I guess because of previous work uh, of other people, the term reading the land was very strong for him and he felt very much that that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But I would always try to explain that for me, it it wasn't reading so much as it was entering into communion with the land. I was being heard by the land, and I was hearing the land. And so I think, again, these things sound all very simple. But just to say it didn't come to me for a good 30 years or something, this ability to be able to do this, because it did take a lot of bumbling around and a lot of mistakes and a lot of me hurting the land in different ways to kind of start to really be able to hear her in a continual stream. right? So that when I go in and I hold an image, say of developing a garden or a place, which will include everything that's going to have to happen in that place, I get a, a response from the land And sometimes the land is willing to host us. And sometimes it's the exact opposite for our dreams, you know, to host our dreams. Mm -hmm. And other times it's just like, no, we're already full on doing something here or recovering from something else or whatever. And uh, I'll sometimes just get a no. And, you know, I think part of it also was with the tea company um, doing really extensive wild harvesting every year for 20 years or so. I would, Always ask, and I'd actually I'd connect with the place in my prayers in the morning when I was doing my offerings to the grandfather and to all the beings of my place, and I'd say, I'm coming for you today, like eloping with somebody. You know? know? And then when you get when you get there, you see her in her full beauty before you take her, right? You really, really hold her up in the highest way. And occasionally, I would even occasionally have a whole truck full of people, like three or four people with me to harvest, and I'd just get a no. Get back in the truck, not today, you know? And then, so I'd look at them and I'd just put my hands up and say, well, no, we're going to go do something else now. And they'd all look at each other and be like, oh, (laughs) we just drove for half an hour to get here. It's like, yeah, sorry. You know, it happens sometimes. And some plants are much more giving say like a red clover, for example, you know, she's one of the friendliest ones around. And it's how she became included in our hay mixtures and all that stuff was her willingness to work with us, you know, so I never get a no from clover. She's that (laughs) really friendly kind of middle child, makes everything work, you know, for everybody and is endlessly giving, you know, nutritive to us, to the land, to everyone. And uh, But then there's some other fellows, you know, like, say, something like uh, Lobelia, the infilata, and very, very cantankerous. And if you pick this one at the wrong time, or you pick maybe the elder plants, the grandmother and the grandfather, she'll disappear from that spot. You'll never see her again. So you have to know each plant individually, and ideally they should be introduced to you by somebody, just like you would be introduced to a person. And then, you know, particularly say in certain cultures, traditional cultures, if you weren't introduced to people, you don't exist. They wouldn't look at you, they wouldn't want to talk to you, nothing, you know? So either you have to humble yourself in such a way at the beginning of that relationship They'd be willing to talk to you, or you have to be introduced by somebody who already knows them really well, which, of course, was the tradition, right? The grandmothers and grandfathers would always introduce their children to these ones, they'd see as healers which plants have affinities, um, which children have affinities with which plants, you know. And as healers, we have so many backward notions from allopathic medicine, but. Um, most healers actually only worked with maybe a half a dozen plants for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this idea that you need to know 120 different herbs to be a herbalist or something. But right. It's not so. It's right. your relationship with those herbs that enables their spirit to come into okay. what's happening and do the healing work because you don't do any of it. I don't do any of the healing work. I'm just the facilitator.
0: I I love that. Um, Yes, I love that all of those ideas for very many reasons. One of the things that I am always banging about banging on about in my own work looking at myths and fairy tales is this quality of apprenticeship which we seem to find very unfashionable these days you know i love the idea that you know you in your tea company you spent 20 years of wildcrafting, you know and that taught you that is what teaches you to listen and to hear what plants are saying but of course we live in a society where everybody expects everything immediately you know the classic you go on a weekend workshop and you come out saying that you're a shaman i mean th- these things just make no sense and i think it is part of the respect that we've lost for the world that we think we can just blunder in we're great at blundering in and uh, expecting that this is our right that if one day we decide to listen to the plants well they're going to be very very grateful and and everybody is just going to give us everything that we need and yeah it's not quite like that is it there are some cantankerous plants out there i love that idea yeah
1: oh and not at all right because we we like reach into these very elaborate cultures and then we try to remove that one little thing Mm. whether it's yoga or herbalism or whatever and then we think that we can practice that thing and it will bring us the same thing as it brought those traditional people but it has no context for it right so it's mostly just this isolated thing that doesn't have any integrity with your actual reality you know and then so people go to work and they have some job where either directly or indirectly they're exploiting people or the earth. <laughs> and then they come home and they do their meditation or their yoga and somehow think that this is going to bring them back into connection with things. But then they go back to work the next day and again are doing all this antithetical behavior to, uh, to the spirit and to the earth and then come home and think you can just do your yoga and be good. Right. No. And, and
0: given, given that we've defined the nature of the problem so beautifully, um, what, what can you tell me a little bit? I'm sure it's a big, I know the answer will be a big one, but, but just give me some sense of how you approach changing that worldview, that mindset in your school. So people come to you, however they may find you. Where do you start? Where do you start with changing that mindset?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, the plant's are these incredible beings that are here for us. I know that sounds very human-centric, but in one way they are here for us and they're waiting for us. And so, yep, we're all gonna be that bumbling, kind of stupid, kind of clumsy, definitely forgetful person when we start. There's no other way to start, right? And often we have to come back and back and back to that same spot to start over and over again. But when you make a connection with one plant, and then you start to bring that plant into your life. So say it's a pine tree, a white pine or something like that. And you learn that, you know, you can make tea from its needles. And then so this can become a ritual in a sense, just like your yoga or just like your meditation or something. Only it's integrated with your reality because you went out, you did a little prayer, you nipped off that little tip of the branch, you know, you brought it back in, you prayerfully cut it up, you put it in that vessel, you prayerfully added the water, and then you're drinking a sacrament. And so all of our food, everything, all the handcrafts, everything we do can be exactly this way so that our life is our spirituality. Our physical reality is our spiritual reality. So that they're, they're the same thing, know that there's no difference between them. And then when we start to move inside of things, they do become the teachers. I know this is a big shocker and everyone kind of shudders when I say this, but you don't need books. You don't, <laughs> need, the, and you don't need the internet. And you don't need any of that stuff. The real teachers are surrounding us, just waiting for us to stop our chatter. You know, just waiting for us to actually surrender to them and this process of co-creation.
0: Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I I, I don't necessarily disagree with Mm. you on the subject of, of books, but for me, myth and story is one very fine way of helping bridge that disconnect though, because it can add a layer on to your experience of the world, capture your imagination. And I found in the days that when I was practicing as a psychologist, that if people wanted to change and you were going to try and help them change and find ways that they might change, transform themselves, if you couldn't capture their imagination, you might as well forget it. And there are various ways of doing that, of course, but I've talked a lot in the past year or two when I've been talking about plants and the mythic imagination about one of the first fairy tales that I fell in love with as a very small child. And it was Han- um, yes, Hans Christian Andersen's The Wild Swans. Do you know it? Yeah, That's the one where she has to weave shirts of nettles. She has to pluck nettles with her bare hands yeah. and she has to weave shirts of nettles in order to transform her brothers from the swans that her wicked stepmother has made of them oh, back God. into men again. And to me, this was one of the this uh, this has always informed my relationship with nettles you know this idea that nettle is a stinging plant it's a plant that will hurt you but if you go if you move through that pain um, if you treat it with respect if you do the work with it if you spin it and spin it and spin it and you create a beautiful shirt then it has this immense transformative power Mm. so I think I think to me, myth and story certainly doesn't detract from the reality of the plant. You always have to know what a nettle is and that it will sting you, that you can use it for soup, that it will have this effect if you take it. But, but the mythic level, the symbolic level, the imaginal level sometimes acts as a wonderful bridge between you and the natural world that you don't quite know how to connect to. Does, does that make any sense in your way of, of teaching?
1: Hugely. And, and just giving us another window, a magical window to see these plants through. But I'd also kind of put back to you that the oral tradition of these stories is what really affects people. And Mm. you know, I had this really lovely thing happen with the story, the voices of the well and that story. And when I tell it to people, oh my God, right? It has a completely different resonance than when they read it. You right, know, right. just because of all the other things that are in your voice and that the the story becomes alive when you start or, oral, you know, like it has a life of its own and it kind of tells itself then.
0: It you just, does. You just
1: become the mouthpiece, you know.
0: Yeah, but, but I do just want to say that in the same way that we were talking about um, agriculture becoming unfashionable, it has also become increasingly fashionable to put all of the world's problems on the rise of written language as opposed oh, yeah. to oral culture. And I think that that is also misinformed. I'm not uh-huh. saying that you're being that simplistic by any yeah. means, but just to broaden that out, you know, that I absolutely agree with you about the life of an oral story. And of course, my culture was very much an oral culture until not really very long ago. But mm-hmm. I think that, for, that, that there are many things that I, I found, I did not grow up in an oral culture. I grew up in a, in a culture of books. And those books, those words on the page came alive for me in just the same way I believe as words might if they were spoken around the campfire in a a society that I no longer had access to and I think a lot again you know everything has the potential for beauty everything has the potential for being used well (laughs) like a knife it's the classic cliche but but it can be used badly if you allow it to overwrite you know some of if you allow some kind of cultural conditioning to overwrite that that rootedness in us which knows that that an oral story is a fine thing. So, yeah, I think, I think they can both have their beauties. Sometimes the, the, the visual element of a word, words on a page can, can be just something different.
1: It's true. And, you know, I absolutely have to agree with you because I came from the same place. Right. That without books, I, I have no idea where I would be. But this funny kind of thing has happened now where uh, my eyes are starting to go. So <laughs> yeah. I have to wear glasses to read, right? And there's this kind of part of myself that's going, yeah, you don't need books anymore, anyways. You're you're good, <laughs> but right. but I agree. When we come from such poverty and such desolation and kind of oblivion of all those traditions, then what's held in the books are these magical seeds, right? And they open up, they find their life in you. You know, I kind of talk mm-hmm. about that in the first book that I, I I I thank the letters and the words for letting me hold them captive on the page mm-hmm. and hope right. that they'll jump out into the reader's eye and find yeah. a place to swim in their imagination, you know. Yeah, yeah. To be released back into the stream of life from from the book, you know, just right. kind of my wish. But yeah. I write books, right? I love books.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, sure. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. can. Sure. Um, I'm
1: just making a point.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. And, and, and I suppose, I suppose the last question I want to ask you is what I probably should have asked you at the beginning, but um, I do, it, it just seems to have worked this way. Uh, as a psychologist, <laughs> inevitably, I'm always interested by people's journeys through life, and how they came to be who they are. Mm. And so I'm curious as to what brought you to this work, how, how you came to it.
1: Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> big question I know. That, that is a big question and a long one. You know, I guess first I have to bow down to my grandparents who my my grandfather was a master horticulturalist, and my grandmother was a witch. <laughs> so she read tea leaves and cards. And that's what witches do back 30 40 years ago. Right. And uh, and somehow They both saw something in me that long, long before I saw it myself. And I believe, you know how you can do such small things for a child to set their whole course. Yeah. They might see you just do one thing like pick a herb or make a herbal tea or do a graft onto an apple tree or something like that and it just crystallizes their imagination and for the rest of their life their course in a, in a way has been recognized and set and I, so i have to acknowledge them first but then um, the second piece i think really has to do with at some point in my late teens as as many teens come to this place i rejected my culture mm. And I did it in the way that a triple Taurus dragon would do it, which is I completely left the whole scene. And i I've learned my indigenous skills so I could survive. I learned what I could forage. I learned to trap. I learned to make shelter. And it was through this kind of complete rejection that I slowly started to get taken into this world of the earth that we left behind. And when i was 19 what really got this going and um you know this is this is kind of uh, i suppose almost become fashionable but it was definitely something i didn't talk about for a long time i i had a um, a psychoactive trip with mushrooms mm-hmm. and i died in that trip for all intensive purposes i died and i saw Basically, the oblivion of my existence as I was leaving it, how very little I'd actually pulled off in this incarnation. And then on my kind of touring, I was shown many different things. But really, what came to me the most was from this, i you have to call it what it is, from this underworld journey, my purpose became... I came back to that purpose that my grandfather and grandmother, because, you know, as typical teenager, right from 13 to when I went off into the bush when I was 19, I was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's that's <laughs> what I was into, right? Right. As most of my generation was. And I got lost, you know. I, I was lost in those years, and I was searching, and that's fine. Um, but this is where... You know uh, luck chance um, and it can't even be bad luck right like uh, i'll kind of jump ahead so that kind of got me on the track and i practiced what i'd learned and i tried to practice it for many many years before i started teaching and i kind of been hiding out in a lot of ways until about 2012 Uh, and then in 2012 I got Lyme disease very severely and full-on thought I was going to die again on a daily basis, you know. It's one right. of those diseases that really gets you in touch with the underworld <laughs> right. and those energies. And for me, it was the wake-up call. It was like, hey, bud, you're not going to be around that much longer. You better stand up, get, get on your feet and start talking like you can't hide out anymore. You no, know, So that's kind of the long and the short of it, I suppose.
0: It, that, I said that was the last question. I lied. What, <laughs> following on from that and, and all of the things that you've said, and, and I think to me what comes across more than anything is the joy that you take in, in your work and in and that connection with the land. But what would you say is the greatest pleasure for you in the work that you do at your school with, with other people? What keeps you going? What, what excites you about that?
1: Oh, it's so clear, you know, it's, it's when people, when I have helped, because again, I can only help, I can't do it for anybody. But when I've helped set up people and the spirit of the land, you know, be it an animal or a tree or an insect, however it's coming through to them, and they make that deeper connection and it becomes mythic for them. Mm-hmm. It changes their life, right. that, one, that one time, that one moment, you know. So in a sense, the whole school, the four sessions that we do over two years, is kind of a setup for that to happen in one way or another. But, but folks need lots of deprogramming first, in a sense, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, breaking down barriers between them and the land. And then they need practice and they need to be shown it. So I do it for them. And I believe our bodies are incredibly wise. Our minds, so, so, and it varies from person to person, but our bodies are incredibly wise at absorbing and extracting unsaid treasures from other people. You know, and I always use this example that if you've ever, if you play sports or something like that and you play or music or anything and you play with a real pro, your whole game goes up massively. Right? You suddenly, like, whoa, this is how you play this or whatever, you know, like it it all comes together for you because you're kind of riding on their body knowledge. You know, your body's connected with their body, and suddenly it all seems simpler to you Mm -hmm. in their presence, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's part of it, too, is I, I think only so much can happen through, say, books or the internet. There has to be a physical body there. And someone has to see that physical body go into that other space with the land and plants. And then they're like, Oh, okay. This is safe. This is natural. You know, this is a human thing. And, it, and
0: how it, did they, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how do they see that with you?
1: Yeah. Well, this is an interesting thing. eh? I'm enmeshed in the land and especially when I'm teaching and in a sacred place in the movements of things. So the land is audibly and visually responding to what I say. It's a very strange thing that starts to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not saying everybody in the class feels it, but people who are kind of close enough to that edge can see it happen. I mean, it happened with the Thunder Beings during this, this year's class where right. I have a long relationship with these beings. As soon as they come in the spring, I was right in the middle of teaching, but I have to stop and they have to be fully acknowledged
0: right, yeah. um,
1: as, as they come into my consciousness. Yeah. And then from that, then later in the day, it was kind of like they were following me around and punctuating everything I was doing. <laughs> You know, like for dramatic effect. Right. It sounds so ridiculous.
0: No, no, no. It doesn't sound ridiculous at all. I do that with crows sometimes. I know know.
1: exactly the same. The birds too, for me. Yeah. And uh, they're helping you, and and they're very aware of what you're doing on an energetic level, and they want to help. Right. You know
0: yeah that whole sense of the land actually wanting to be in a relationship with us and and all of its beings and and us being so oblivious to that and isn't that the most tragic thing in the world really for for the land exactly. and for us exactly yeah. Wonderful. Stephen, it, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much um, for a lovely conversation. I just want to encourage everybody who is listening to go and find out more about your work at whatever level they can, if they're local or if they would like to go and visit your website, which is the sacredgardener.ca, And we will put that on the webpage as well, where we put our podcast so that everybody can can find it easily. Uh, again, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Uh, Thank you so much Sharon. Hopefully someday we can meet in person. That would
0: be a lovely thing.
1: Okay, have a good day.
0: Thank you all for listening to This Mythic Life and if you enjoyed it, please do continue to follow my work at www.sharonblackie.net where you'll find free resources as well as courses which are designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places and finding a deep, embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate Earth. If the ideas you've heard here resonate with you, you might also like to visit www.jaronblackie.net and sign up for my newsletter and my weekly subscriber-only reflections on cultivating the mythic imagination, which is also entitled This Mythic Life. These podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters, so if you are able to support this work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for Sharon Blackie, or you can find a link on my website. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.